All right, well, welcome back. Thank you. It's my pleasure to introduce the moderator for our next panel. panel. Ruben Navarrete is the most widely read Latino columnist in the country and the 16th most popular columnist in America, according to Media Matters. He is a nationally syndicated columnist with the Washington Post Writers Group, whose twice a week column appears in nearly 150 newspapers. A contributor to USA Today and FoxNews.com, a columnist for the Daily Beast, and basically a contributor to just about every major newspaper in the United States. A graduate of Harvard College and a John F. Kennedy School of Government, he is the author of A Darker Shade of Crimson, Odyssey of a Harvard Chicano. He spent 12 years working for U.S. newspapers as a reporter metro columnist for the Arizona Republic, reporter for the Dallas Morning News, and the editorial board of the San Diego Union Tribune. He judged a contest for the Pulitzer Prize in 2013 and 14, and was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize in commentary by the Washington Post Writers Group in 2012. Navarrete lives in San Diego with his wife and three children. Now, a little personal story, I met Ruben in person last year while we were both uh, serving on a panel at Wheaton College in Illinois. I didn't tell him this at the time, but I was very nervous to meet him. Uh, you see, Ruben's writings on immigration are essential reading for anybody who follows the topic. So I've been reading him for years before meeting him in person. So it was kind of like meeting a, uh, a minor celebrity that I greatly admired, or maybe a major celebrity that I greatly admired. So uh, please join me in welcoming uh, Ruben. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for joining us. I have to tell you, first of all, as an aside, that panel discussion we had in Wheaton College outside of Chicago, where I met Alex, there were a number of us on, on the stage, and we all had a conversation about immigration, but Alex was the one with the huge personality, cracking all the jokes, <laughs> making everybody laugh, capturing the audience. And I said, I can't, at one point in the discussion, I said, I can't wait to go home, go back to the hotel, call my wife back in San Diego and tell her that, believe it or not, the life of the party was The Economist. <laughs> uh, but it happened. Those of you who know Alex will not be surprised to know it happened. So I'm going to do something very briefly. I just want to say a few things to set the stage and then tell you a little bit about our format today. Um, but um, maybe the first place I'll start is the format itself. And we're going to talk for 40 minutes about the immigration debate. We're going to throw it open to questions in the, the portion of the, really the debate, the discussion I look forward to is hearing from all of you. Uh, we're going to have questions, not statements and speeches. Uh, I don't want anybody imitating Jorge Ramos out there. Nobody's going to stand up and, uh, you know, if you want to get on a panel, talk to Alex, they'll bring you next year. Uh, but for now, you're going to stand up and ask a question or we're going to cut you off. Um, beyond that, um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, each of these panelists, give you their background. I'm going to go through and ask them questions about why they think the immigration debate is broken and their own entry point into immigration reform, why they care about this issue, write about the, this issue, and speak about this issue. And I'll start uh, answering that question for me. Um, by way of background, um, my grandfather was a Mexican immigrant from Chihuahua. He came from uh, Chihuahua, Mexico during the Mexican Revolution with 600,000 other people. They all came legally. They all came legally because you could not come illegally until 1924. Uh, so he came between 1910 and 1920. No gold star for grandpa, unfortunately. Uh, I will get mail sometimes from people who say my great-great-great-great-grandfather came here from Ireland and he came legally. And it makes me wonder that we need to spend you know, perhaps less money on our public schools and have more accountability and teach history uh, better than we do. Uh, but in any case, so that's the background and how I come to the issue. I've covered this issue in, uh, in Dallas and in Phoenix, Los Angeles, uh, and now in San Diego. You know, this is in ground zero in many cases. And, and let me just sort of summarize what I've learned in 25 years of covering this debate. This is, to my mind, the most dishonest debate in America. 
It's the debate um, where Democrats lie to their constituents and Republicans lie to their constituents, and they keep this game going. It is a game. You know, I, I quote the prophet Omar Little from uh, The Wire, David Simon's drama The Wire. He talked about the game in the drug wars in Baltimore. For me, the game is the immigration debate, where people inflame each side. They raise money. There's tons of money coming to the debate on all sides. Liberal groups, conservative groups, they all sound the same. Everybody's supporting a staff. Nothing ever gets done. Everybody calls each other names. And then we move on. And we do it again, and we do it again, and we do it again. And it keeps people like me employed, and nothing gets done. And I talk to people who are here who are undocumented, and family members who are undocumented, and they don't understand how it is that a debate that generates so much heat could generate so little light. Uh, but that's where we are. So that's my two cents. I'm going to go through, um, you just got the radio version of a, my, my short summary. I'm going to introduce our panel of experts. This is Matthew Culkin. He's the managing partner of a New York-based firm of Culkin & Culkin. He's a nationally recognized immigration lawyer and immigration reform advocate. Uh, Matt's analysis of immigration law frequently appears in major media outlets, including Forbes magazine, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post. He's the author of the Deportation and Removal blog. He's been especially critical of President Obama's harsh deportation record. We have Gabby Pacheco uh, next to Matt, who is a nationally recognized immigration rights leader, immigrant rights leader, she gained national recognition in 2004 for her, for her advocacy of the DREAM Act and immigration reform. Uh, in 2012, as political director for United We Dream, she spearheaded the efforts that led to the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. In 1993, at the age of eight, Gabby immigrated to the United States with her family from Ecuador. They arrived with tourist visas, but were unable to secure legal resident status. On April 22, 2013, Gabby became the first undocumented Latina to testify in front of Congress speaking to the Senate Judiciary Committee about the urgent need for immigration reform. Gabby holds an Associate of Arts degree in Music Education, an Associate, Associate of Arts degree in Early Childhood Education, a BA in Special Education, K-12 from Miami-Dade College. And finally, we have a familiar uh, name and face to all of you. Grover Norquist is president of Americans for Tax Reform, a taxpayer advocacy group he founded in 1985 at President Reagan's request. ATR works to limit the size and cost of government and opposes higher taxes at the federal, state, and local level, supports tax reform that moves toward taxing consumed income one time, one time at one rate, most notably through their Taxpayer Protection Pledge. He's also been a tireless advocate for reforming the immigration system. Those of you who follow the debate know this to be true. He owes an, an MBA and BA in economics, both from Harvard University, and he lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife and two daughters. So the way I want to get into the panel is I want to ask each of you to take two minutes. First of all, we're going to have plenty of time to talk, and we're going to, uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask initially what your entry point is for the immigration debate. What does the immigration debate mean for you? Uh, why are you involved in it? Why do you care about it? Why are you passionate about it? Um, and let's start us off, uh, if you would, Matthew. Sure. Well, I'm an immigration lawyer, so obviously I have a, a stake as to whether or not there's going to be any change in the immigration law. But the focus of my practice is deportation defense. and. Um, I have a reputation of uh, being a problem solver, trying to figure out a way to help my clients. And I, I need the laws uh, potentially to be altered a little bit in order to provide the best possible solution for my client base. Um, so obviously I have a stake both uh, from a humanitarian standpoint but as well as a professional standpoint of seeing is that this gets done and it gets done quickly. You are a problem solver. Most uh, lawyers I know and most immigration lawyers I know are problem children, so. Well, my wife would probably agree. <laughs> you need a special kind of personality to do, every, do what you do every day in fighting deportation cases, so. 
Thank you and welcome. Uh, Gabby Pacheco. Uh, so as Ruben said, uh, I came to the United States when I was eight years old. And growing up, I understood and knew that there was something happening in my home uh, because I had my parents constantly asking my older sister to help translate and call, uh, at the time, INS to see what was happening, to call the attorney to see uh, where was the process for our immigration going. Uh, and it was when my youngest or my older sister tried to go into college that they told her she couldn't go to school because she didn't have the right papers, uh, that I realized that um, we were in the country uh, without a status. And so me being able to go to college and my sisters not being able to do that and other friends um, led me to um, say, you know, there's something wrong here. Um, if people want to have an education, want to pay for their own education, and they're not even allowed to do that, um, we need to reform this. So I came more from the humanitarian side of the issue um, and little by little started realizing um, a lot of what Ruben was talking about, uh, the dysfunction there is. And... Uh, the use of these human beings of this issue, both the ones that are unauthorized and the American people um, that are being used by politicians to, um, you know, score political points and rally people out to vote. Um, and so for the last uh, decade, my work has been to um, bring about some change highlight, speak out, not really be afraid. Uh, we were before talking about the bullying that I've uh, gone through from both sides, right? Oh, she's a Republican operative trying to change and uh, divide the movement and all this other stuff when I'm just really trying to um, hold uh, politicians accountable to this issue and the immigrant rights movement. It's interesting. If you think about the 11 million undocumented immigrants in the country, um, I've heard different numbers in terms of the number of dreamers who are there, but a number we'll sometimes throw around 500,000, 700,000 uh, or so. Um, and there are maybe a handful that are nationally recognized. You're one of them. Um, but, but my own position on the Dreamers has evolved over time to, I think, a better place. But I, I really respect the fact that they are not burdened by blind partisanship. Uh, they are so much more enlightened on this issue than uh, the average Mexican-American in the Southwest who's, who've been here for six generations, and they always vote Democrat. They would never vote for a Republican. And then the dreamers come in and sh they're shocked to the whole system uh, because they're actually looking with an objective eye at both parties. It's very refreshing. Uh, Mr. Norquist, uh, where is your entry point for the immigration debate? It's a good question. Economics. Um, <clears throat> immigration is good for countries, for economy, uh, history. Uh, the United States did two things. You know, American exceptionalism. What is it? Well, not that we have a big army. I don't know where people got that idea. We didn't have a big army for most of the time <clears throat> that we were being exceptional. It's when we're not terribly exceptional that we tend to act like other countries. Um, we had very low tax rates. We were paying 1% to 2% prior to, uh, say, 1774. We were paying 1% to 2% in taxes, and we were open immigration. And that's what made us different from everybody else. And we just grew faster and better, and were more harmonious, uh, and worked well together better than other countries where everybody spoke the same language and had the same accent and didn't like the guys on the other side of the river. Uh, so for all those reasons, it just seems self-evident uh, that it was good for the country and, and good for the economy and good for our, our national strength. Uh, and then I get to Washington, D.C., and I'm always getting dragged into press conferences with Jack Kemp fighting the labor unions on uh, trying to uh, keep out immigrants. So. Uh, 
and then they kept having the press conferences. And the labor unions are still on the other side, even though sometimes they pretend not to be. Uh, it's very interesting because you come at this as an economist uh, from the, the economic point of view, and it's primarily an economic problem. You have workers, you have jobs, you have to match things up. There's the economic cost involved. It takes like two seconds in the American debate on, on any radio show in America to go through that, mm -hmm. and the rest of the show is about cultural stuff. So before long, we're talking about language and inferior culture and bringing in criminals, and there goes the neighborhood, and the same conversation we've had ever since Benjamin Franklin railed against the Germans in the late 1700s. This new group of people is coming, and they're inferior to the people who are already here. So it's interesting that um, if we could see the debate more in economic terms, we'd probably have a lot less heat and less arrows flaring back at each other. But even on the cultural stuff, I mean, everybody knows the history that people objected to the Japanese guys showing up, and they objected to the Chinese. Now they turn around and go, oh, those are the, those are the guys we like now. And um, everybody's busy, their kids are busy marrying the immigrants that their grandparents didn't approve of. Uh, it's the new guy. This, you know, but it's right. All the other waves of immigrants were all positive except this week's. And you'd think at some point they'd read the beginning of the book. Right. Mm -hmm. Let me ask the question back this way, the second question, and then we're going to have a discussion. The second question is, uh, for a minute or so, could you talk to us about, I'm going to ask you each a specific question that seems to me to be at the heart of what you do. And I'll start with you going backward, Mr. Norquist Grover. This is, the thing that's interesting to me is you have a coalition of people put together. You have a Republican Party that's fractured. You have a conservative movement that's fractured. You have business interests that want more um, ready immigrant labor. You have a nativist wing of the party that is becoming more and more vocal all the time. It can't be ignored. My question is, how do you clean house within the conservative movement to the point where you do a better job of standing up and fighting when necessary with those folks who push aside all the economic arguments and all the concerns mm. uh, and, frankly, all the money that's gone in the Republican Party from the, the Chamber of Commerce and other business interests, and they go down that ugly, dead-end cultural road. So how do, how do folks in your wing of the conservative movement find, uh, fight that other sure. element? Well, what you need is, is, is clarity. When you, the modern, who supports uh, more open immigration policy? Business community. And by that, I mean the high-tech guys in, in Silicon Valley, the people who are farmers and, and ranchers, uh, small businessmen and women. You just go through each of these groups, the business community. I, I was at a meeting with the Republican National Committee chairman, uh, 99, maybe 2000, at the 12 major trade associations, and I was Mr. Taxpayer. So they had the chamber and the truckers and retailers and these guys, they all went around the room for 40 minutes. What is, what's important to you? And they said, take all the trial lawyers and put them in a plastic bag and drown them and <laughs> cut the capital gains tax. And that was really it. It was doing the trial lawyers and cut the capital gains tax all the way around the room. And Mr. Nicholson, head of the party, thinks, thank you very much, and uh, starts to leave. And the guy from the Chamber of Commerce says, well, there's, there is this one other thing. It's like the last scene in uh, the Columbo TV shows, right? Yeah. There's just one other thing. Like, well, what is it? Well, I don't know how to bring it up. Well, what, what is Well, we've never talked. What is it? We're running out of workers, 99. And everybody around the table said, actually, you know, we're 300,000 short in retail and several hundred thousand short in trucking. Right. You know, I don't even know where all the trucks are that they're, but anyway, but everybody, they had a number. They, they not just said, yes, this is an issue. They had a number in their mind on what they were short and this was not happening. Uh, so the business community sees this as a very big issue, and it's just not just one piece of the business community. It's not just 
grape growers or something. Um, then you have the religious communities. Every one of the religious communities, from the Mormons, who are probably the most pro-immigration uh, group, to the Roman Catholic Church, to the Southern Baptists, which was, I don't know, maybe it shouldn't have been, but it was a surprise to me. Um, and that's a bottom-up vote. That's not some guy down. They, they vote on this up through the groups. Uh, so if the Republican Party isn't business guys who go to church from time to time, I'm not quite sure what it is. And you have these two pieces of the, uh, of the broader coalition feel very strongly about um, the issue. But they get voters, get caught up by shiny things. And, and this is where um, people who are unhappy about the school system, not teaching people American history, and they're not happy with the welfare system, um, taking their money and paying people who don't work. Instead of being mad at the people who were born here and who relatives all went to Harvard you know, 100 years ago, who invented the welfare system and the public school system, they decide to be mad at the immigrants who come through the public school system and don't learn as well as they need to, or some of whom go on welfare. We had John O'Sullivan uh, used to run the National Review. And he gave a speech just 20, 25 years ago, and he said, we've got a big problem, all these immigrants come to the United States, and, um, and then they vote, and they become Democrats, and because they go on welfare and they don't get very good education and then become, that makes them Democrats and this is a problem. And I came up to him afterwards and he gave a great speech on the failure of the public school system right. and he gave a great speech on the dangers of dependency and welfare. What were you talking about immigrants? I missed their role in all this since most of the people who are damaged by lousy public schools were born here and most of the people damaged by welfare as it's currently structured were born here. What's the immigrant thing? And he said, well, we can't fix the teachers' union." and we can't fix welfare, but we can close the border. And I would suggest the last 25 so years, me, suggest we're going to have more luck on welfare and I, education than closing borders. Let me uh, thank you for that. And let me just tell you, as someone who lives 10 miles from the US-Mexico border, good luck with that, by the way, um, I would say to him. Um, my question for you, Gabby Pacheco, specific to what you do is, as I mentioned before, when I first started writing about the Dreamers, I wrote this column that got me in trouble with my wife which is never a good place to start, never. My Mexican-born wife took me to task for a column I'd written about the Dreamers because I w they were getting on my nerves. They were getting on my nerves because they seemed to be a bunch of spoiled, entitled kids who thought the immigration debate started when they got here. I remember that. there was that. no history to any of that. Petulant children. Yes, yeah. And I, I would confess that in every group that I belong to, whether it be a bunch of Harvard guys or the media or whatever, you're going to find jerks in every category. And certainly there are Dreamers, I think, that fit that category. But my wife beat me up pretty good about it, and I wrote a follow-up column uh, correcting some of that and my impression of it. But let's go back to the first sense of entitlement. I think what I hear from people is they are angry with the dreamers because young people who come here as a, as a young child and are marinating for years in these juices, they are, as the dreamers say, American in every way. Okay? That includes all the bad ways. So the average 20-year-old dreamer is about as spoiled and unrealistic and as entitled as the average 20-year-old American kid working at Starbucks. We know those kids well. So these are the Latino dreamer millennials that we're talking about now. How do you get beyond this, this perception that many Americans have that the dreamers are sort of asking for everything be done for me, I'm giving nothing back, you know, they're not big on John Kennedy's ask not what you can do for your country. It's always a set of demands, a set of entitlement. I haven't heard much from dreamers about being grateful 
that they're here, grateful for the opportunities they have, and eager to contribute back to America in return for legal status. How do you fix that? So um, I just want to make, before I, I go into that, a comment on uh, the question that you had asked, Gorber, and um, on the conservative uh, community. Um, and that's one of the most disappointing things that I think it's happening in America, that they allow for um, single voices that go rogue and um, nobody really stands up to them and says, what you're saying is wrong. And we're seeing that right now with the presidential candidates. They all jump on the same bandwagon um, and start you know, saying these ridiculous things about immigrants that are not necessarily true. Um, and I think that it is time for both conservatives, Republican, whatever, um, to really stand up, you know, even if it's in kitchen tables, you know, t talking around the, the uh, kitchen or, um, you know, in the media just saying, enough, what you're saying is not true. Um, and now going to the dreamers. I think that that's also, again, another myth and perception. Uh, when we come at it, you know, we went through the same classrooms, the same history lessons, and that's actually where I come from. Um, I wholeheartedly believe in democracy. Um, I love this country so much that I stand up and against this whole notion that you have to be of one party and one party is better and that you know, you, everybody has to be that party in order for the country to be better, right? And, and that's what you usually hear in campaigns, right? Oh, um, uh, we're gonna only fix immigration once we make everybody a Democrat. You know, that's what we need. Um, and I, I stand against that, even though I'm a very progressive person, um, and I, people would see me more because of my political views as a Democrat, um, I try to shy away from that. One, because I have the privilege of not uh, being a voter, so I don't have to make the decision today, right, of where I have to vote. Um, but at the same time, I, I wholeheartedly believe that uh, our country is greater when we have different points of views and we're able to hear all those points of views. Uh, and I, I push back on the fact that uh, dreamers are entitled and et cetera. Um, dreamers are, are ingrained with that idea of the American dream. Our families, when they come here, they teach us really early on, education's key, you've got to work hard. Um, if you want to accomplish the dream. And, and for our parents and our families, it's not necessarily about them, it's about their children. Uh, and so for us, it's a fight to be able to accomplish that. And you know, when you want something and when um, it's your dream, you fight tooth and nail to be able to achieve it. And so maybe um, people see that drive that we have uh, to make our lives better, the lives of our community and our families better, um, as a sense of entitlement, I see it more as uh, what everyday Americans, you know, who have come to this country have always uh, had embedded in them and what has made this country the country it is. Thank you for that. And Matthew, my question to you is, as an immigration attorney, you're in a very interesting spot. And I think President Obama and his administration has put you in a very interesting spot this is an administration that, for all its nice words and pretty rhetoric, has deported 2 million people, uh, 400,000 people a year in an illegal and unnecessary quota that's now out in the open and public knowledge. And we know this because they themselves have bragged about these figures and going before Congress saying, we'll do even better next year. They've divided hundreds of thousands of families. They've lied about it. They've created all this smoke and mirrors. I get paid to follow this stuff, and I get a headache trying to keep track of all the bullshit. That Can I say that at the Cato Institute? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to of all the bullshit that comes out of this administration, uh, and it really does confuse things and, and create a lot of fog, and yet, 
as a trial attorney, you're from a constituency of people that vote Democrat. And so when you have a group like AILA, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, it puts them in quite a pickle. They have to figure out, are they going to be immigration attorneys today and support immigrants, or are they going to be Democrats today and support a Democratic administration? And it all came to a crescendo recently when they invited, in their infinite wisdom, Cecilia Munoz, the chief White House apologist for the Obama deportation debacle, to speak at their convention. So my question to you is, everybody's got issues here. <laughs> with your issue seems to be, how do immigration attorneys uh, clean up their own act with regard to their cohort and get them to just do what they're supposed to do, which is defend immigrants again? Well, things have... No matter who the president is. Th things have been turning around a little bit in AILA um, with the new leadership, a, a little bit, only because um, what's going on with uh, the creation of, uh, of, of child uh, deportation internment, internment camps, and that's really what they are. They're internment camps. They have taken uh, the Central American refugees who have uh, escaped unspeakable violence um, and are, uh, are winning cases uh, when they have representation. It's been proven that they, uh, they are refugees. Um, to, to, to sort of piggyback on what you were saying before about why aren't conservatives standing up, and, and to address your question, uh, there's a, an obligation of Democrats, and I'm not a Democrat, I'm, I'm uh, a libertarian, so I think I am probably in the right, uh, <laughs> you the are right, the right place, place today. Um, in any event. You just uh, made Alex very happy yeah. out there. <laughs> um, Democrats have got to, to stand up to the president, not only because of the abuses that are being um, committed against uh, the most vulnerable of, uh, of this planet, but because he has slandered the immigrant community for the last uh, seven years. He has amassed uh, record deportations, and the way he's been able to um, sell this to his constituency and, and make it more palatable is he's, he's advanced this claim that he's deporting serious criminals. Gangbangers yes. is his favorite yeah. phrase. And felons, not families. And the, the statistics don't bear it out at all. Uh, in fact, a very small percentage of the individuals that uh, have been encountered and have uh, been removed from this country are serious criminals at all. Um, the Syr Syracuse University has a, um, uh, a, a statistic gathering um, uh, institute called TRAC Immigration. And they just came out with another statistic. And they show recently in the last year that approximately 10% of all of the detainers that are being issued by ICE against individuals who they want to seek removal against uh, have any uh, criminal record uh, at all. And then when you break down the statistics, the 10% even closer, there's a, a minutia that are anyone that you would consider to be a serious criminal. A, a lot of the people that, that the Obama administration characterizes as being a serious criminal are people that are guilty of the offense of driving while brown. Uh, people that are being pulled over for traffic offenses are considered to be criminals. Uh, the Obama administration has also ramped up federal criminal prosecutions against immigration law violators for returning to the United States after uh, they had been previously ordered removed without first obtaining advance permission from the Attorney General. Um, and, and so he has created this narrative, this false narrative, that, which fuels all of the anti-immigrant hate uh, that there are millions of people among us, among us that are, are evil people and that they need to be removed from this country, and he's doing everything in his power to remove just those people. That's interesting. I thought only Donald Trump did that. Well, it's only, it's, it's only racist and xenophobic if a Republican says it. It's interesting when you think about that. The whole rhetoric of illegal immigrants or criminals started somewhere, and 
when a Democratic president uses a phrase like gangbangers, mm -hmm. we don't raise an eyebrow, but when a, vice, a presidential candidate who's a Republican talks about criminals coming across the border, my liberal colleagues yeah. in the press go nuts. Yeah. Well, here you had a president come in, the 2008 election, uh, with super majorities in the House and Senate, both houses. Uh, you had a number of Republicans who a year before had uh, been willing, to support, two years before had been willing to support Bush in uh, broader immigration reform. And for two years in a row, uh, he woke up in the morning and didn't introduce immigration reform, didn't push immigration reform, didn't speak to immigration reform. He went to bed at night and said that was a successful day. And he did that for two years. If somebody told you they were going to the gym to lose weight, and for two years they <laughs> never, ever went to the gym, at some point you'd say they're not serious. Then when their car breaks down, like when he lost the house, they go, oh, you know what I really want to do? I want to go to the gym, except my car doesn't work and the house won't let me now. Oh. Um, so the I'm not going to do it, uh, I, I can't do it, uh, was nonsense because when he could, he didn't. He chose not to. And mm -hmm. I think the secret is organized labor, not such secret, is opposed to this. A wonderful quote from the labor professor who said that every restrictionist piece of legislation against immigrants in the history of the United States uh, uh, came out of organized labor uh, from the efforts against the Chinese, the Japanese, and then 24 and so on. Um, this is where it comes from. And on the right, this is where it comes from. Who, who thought up and pushed uh, numbers, CIS, and FAIR? They come out of the population control, radical environmentalist movement who see people as a net negative. Okay? They think there are too many people um, because people are not an asset but a liability, which is a very left-wing concept, which is why it's funny conservatives write checks to those three groups started by complete left-wing twits. So let me, let me have a discussion about what, what Grover just mentioned, and that is in terms of creating the fog, I wrote a column once many years ago where I, I made the point that organized labor was opposed to immigration reform, and it's historical um, examples. And even the recent historical example, the last time Congress got into this in a meaningful way in 2006 and 2007, we saw it then. Hmm. And somebody wrote back from the AFL-CIO and said, you know, you're wrong. Here's, you know, we've signed all these documents. We've written it down. It's all written down. We're in favor of this, in favor of that. So there's been a amount of confusion com uh, created because when you go into the guts of it and you talk to people in the Senate and elsewhere, you find out that there's all this lever pulling behind the scenes yeah. by organized labor to keep things off this and off that and off the table. Not and off a the complete discussion. secret. Bob Novak, the columnist, wrote a piece yes. about how yes. Obama was the guy who walked into the room during that deal and said, by the way, memo from the FLCL, this thing is dead because he wouldn't allow a guest worker program, which meant you'd lost all the support that was available from the West. And the Republicans also, pox on both houses, they have the same thing because they go forward and they tolerate all this ugly, nativist, anti-Mexican, anti-Latino rhetoric, and then they come forward and say, and you know, vote for us, say habla español. You know? it, and the liberals have a right to laugh at that because it's a joke, but you have to be able to laugh at yourself as well. Your side is also BSing everybody by trying to put forward this, this fiction that somehow organized labor wants to increase the floodgates, open the floodgates to bring in more foreign workers so that the steel worker will have more to comp compete with. It just it's not a reality, but there's a lot of fog that's created on a daily basis by both sides. So my question to you is, how do you begin to sort of clear through the fog? You can't have a, a solution, which I'm going to ask you all for your solution quickly uh, to follow. But before we even get to a solution, how do you begin to clear the fog so we know who the players are in this game? Gabby. It's, it's, it's very difficult. It's very hard uh, because <clears throat> you, I, as a person that looks at it from 
me being affected by it, my family being affected by it, um, and trying to really go at it and look for a solution. Um, I go in there and I understand some of the concerns that labor has, right? Especially around um, people's um, wages, the conditions that they're working in, right? Those are legitimate concerns. But when it comes to, for instance, um, the DREAM Act, uh, for a very long time, they didn't want for the DREAM Act to be uh, voted on as a standalone bill because it was all or nothing. Um, you know, you look and you say, who are my friends, you know? Um, but then you go, and, and I did this in 2013 when there was a possibility to get a DREAM Act legislation um, passed. Um, and you talk to some of these members, and these members believe a lot of the anti-immigrant rhetoric that is being spewed. Um, and you're like, wait a minute, you know, where do you come through this? And, and the legislation, the people that are writing this legislation, you know, some of them are not pro-immigrant, are not uh, happy with having a lot of brown people in this country and the demographics showing that there will be a day that that would be the majority, right? So um, I, I think that we just have to, as a community and voters, um, really need to get more sophisticated in the way they, you know, push forward and and hold, you know, these parties accountable. Um, we are certainly doing that. Um, and, you know, we, uh, in 2012, the reason why we got DACA is because we said, Marco Rubio wants to do this. We're ready to support Marco Rubio. And we went to the White House and said to them, you want us to support Marco Rubio or do you want us to support you for doing the right thing? And of course, then they said, let's do DACA. And, you know, mm. people went out and, and supported the president. So um, I, I think that it, it's sad that we hold parties so, you know, in our hearts that we forget um, that sometimes these politicians and these parties are wrong. Um, and we don't like holding them accountable because we don't like to be wrong either. Matthew, I want to get your answer to this question. And then we're going to throw it open to questions. And we come back to close out. Then I'll take a short one-minute discussion sure. about um, your solution to the to try to try to get some honesty. So my, the way I would phrase it to you is exactly right. You're up in Buffalo in the trenches. You're mm -hmm. arguing immigration cases, trying to stop deportation. You're lucky you don't live in Washington. You don't have to worry about politics on a daily basis. But from your view as a political outsider, but someone who's dealing with the stuff in the trenches, um, how do you begin to clear the fog to even make sure that the immigration attorneys understand? Uh, where these laws are coming from and what their battles are about. It's, it's a near impossible task. And the reason why is um, the individuals that are, uh, are arguing on either side of the debate, both liberals and, and conservatives, uh, are completely ignorant as to the actual immigration law and how it plays out. So, uh, for example, um, and, and, they're, and they're using talking points on either side, either anti-amnesty or pathway to citizenship in order to bludgeon the other, the opponent. Uh, when, uh, if you actually look at the, uh, the existing law, there are ways to fix it in, in, in a measured way. Uh, but, for example, the, the Senate legislation that, that passed, the quote-unquote bipartisan legislation, it's a nightmare. Uh, they, they try, the Democrats are trying to sell that as a, as a pathway to citizenship. I try to... To dispel that rumor, it's really the Bataan death march to citizenship because the vast majority of the people that are on that path will never, ever see lawful permanent residence 
regardless of whether or not uh, they uh, forget about uh, U.S. citizenship. That's it's just not going to happen for at least half of the individuals that are here without any authorization. And the problem is that when you have you, were, you mentioned the American Immigration Lawyers Association. You have spokespeople from that organization that are in, ingrained into the, the, the culture of, of the association that are assisting in perpetuating the myths that are being carried on by the Democratic Party. Uh, White House talking points often over the last seven years have found their way into press releases or political statements of, uh, of the association's spokespeople. And so what I have done over the last uh, decade or so is, is embrace social media. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, a real, it's a great equalizer, uh, and it allows people like Gabby to, to have their voices heard. And um, we just have to keep fighting. I want to thank all of you for your perspectives. And we're going to go to questions now, come back in the 30-second roundup. To, you get to solve the immigration problem, the immigration debate that has uh, become a quag quagmire politically and for this country. But uh, we'll get a chance to get our microphones out. Anybody who has a question can raise your hand. And please, again, questions, not, not speeches and statements. Um, yes, sir. Uh, yes, um, every census shows that the number of Hispanics is growing. And uh, Hispanics uh, are rightly celebratory of that. It means that their influence is greater, their culture is better recognized, their language becomes more widespread. Uh, that's perfectly understandable. Uh, my question to you, though, is why is the growing sense of Hispanic numbers and influence considered good, healthy ethnic pride, whereas the reverse feeling of whites who don't wish to see their numbers decline and diminish? Why is it racist and horrible for a white to prefer to live in, an, in a nation that is majority white, and why should whites celebrate the arrival of others who are celebrating their growing numbers at the expense of whites? Thank you very much. I appreciate this question. Gabby Pacheco? Uh, as you understand the question uh, very clearly, I guess. I could, I could repeat it, but in summary... You no, know, what, I heard, I heard. You got it. Okay. Um, <laughs> and you probably have heard it before. Yes. In very and um, it's, it's the way... This is why I think a lot of people um, supported SB 1070 in Arizona, for instance. And uh, I try to explain this to folks and people... Um, why people feel like, like you do, right? And it's the fact that in Arizona, the older population, when they look at the children, they see all these little brown faces and they don't see themselves. And that scares the bejesus out of them because they say, oh, we're being you know, wiped out and our race is not um, uh, moving forward or we're not having as many kids. And I think the first solution is, you know, you need to start having more sex, and you need to start having more kids. Um, Have more babies. <laughs> more babies. Um, but second, you know, um, I don't really see a difference between um, a white person and myself. You know, I see just another fellow human being. And I think that uh, for too long, they have tried to paint us, and they, I mean, institutions and others, against each other. Um, we probably have the same dreams that we have for our children. And um, yes, our cultures are different, but on the sphere of language, for instance, that has never happened in the United States. That's the fear that we had in the 1800s, the 1900s. Right. Oh, the Italians are coming. You know, they're only speaking Italian. Well, yes, my parents don't speak English that well. My dad speaks it a little. My mom, not as bad. 
but I speak it. Right. And my children are going to speak probably English and probably Spanish because I want them to be bilingual and hopefully trilingual and et cetera. So I think um, it's, it's a matter of fear. Um, and it's something that has been ingrained in us to fear each other, but it's something that we really have to try to dismiss because, you know, this is why you s war start. This um, is why um, we, we can move forward. As, let me go as, to another, yeah. another, excuse me, yeah. another question if I could, and then to another panelist, and then we'll keep, keep going on to this. I'm sure this theme will uh, continue. Yes, in the back. Oh, microphone. Hi. Um, I remember that two years ago, there was a new policy. So for international students who graduated from US college, so after the final job, they still have to go through a lottery to um, get the H-1B visa. Is there any chance you see that can be changed? I guess I'll take yes. that. Okay. Um, short answer is no. I don't see any legislation um, passing through both houses of Congress uh, this year or next year. Um, and uh, there's a lot of there's growing sentiment in this country that we that we don't and it's it's not sentiment that I share uh, that we don't need uh, more H-1Bs um, because the individuals are being employed in positions that aren't really specialty occupations, which is defined as uh, having a minimum requirement of a four-year degree or the equivalent experience to a four-year degree. Uh, and there was a terrible. Um, um, article that was written in the New York Times about Disneyland, uh, I think that inflamed things. So, yeah, so to answer the question about whether or not uh, they will expand H-1Bs, they did in the past, but that was when Congress was working. Yeah, and it's sad, you know, this article that, that came out in the New York Times, right, that talked about that, um, it, it is people abusing the system. The same way politicians are abusing this issue of immigration to score political points, you do have people that are saying and figuring out how to abuse the system. And so at the end of the day, we're all being screwed by it, right? It's both the immigrants and um, Americans alike. Yeah, there's been a lot of support, bipartisan support, for something like H-1Bs. If, uh, if somebody comes here and gets a PhD in some uh, interesting um, uh, Subject, uh, let them stay in and work if they're an engineer, if they're, um, uh, they write code. Uh, and most people in the House and Senate will tell you they're for that. The challenge is on this issue, but also criminal justice reform, which has had some similar dynamics. If you look at something that's a really good idea, and everyone says it's a good idea, and a majority of the House and Senate um, think it's a good idea, uh, you might say, well, that's going to pass. And the answer is no, you've just described a hostage. Um, because everybody who has a stupid piece of legislation that nobody wants to push grabs the hostage and says, you can have the thing you all want, H-1Bs, Dreamer, any of the, 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 the pieces of an immigration reform, many of the pieces of which have strong overwhelming support in both houses and would cheerfully pass if they were left to themselves. They, they grab the hostages and say, I have to have my thing or you don't get what you want. And if you have enough boat anchors attached to this piece of legislation, even good legislation will sink. And it's one of the major challenges we have. It's, it's, uh, it's what happens to good legislation. Um, let's see. Yes, sir, in the middle. I'll get to as many of you as I can. One minute left. 
One more question, okay. Yes, do you think uh, national security uh, concerns uh, plays a role in the uh, immigration debate <laughs> alongside with uh, the basic principles of democracy in America, particularly when you have people coming from a non-friendly nation to the United States? Absolutely. One of the biggest assets we had was people who came throughout the Cold War from not friendly countries. They were a tremendous asset to us and undermined the countries that they fled. The idea that Cuban-Americans are secretly Castro supporters is always striking as kind of stupid. Um, and people who leave Saudi Arabia have decided they don't want to walk around carrying a tent over their head. You know, they, you know, they didn't decide, I think we should make everybody in the United States. I want to not live in the place that does that. I want to be in the United States. It undermines our opponents, and, and particularly when it, it gives us more labor, more capital, more energy. It makes us stronger uh, and better. And if we're going to compete in the world, why in the world would you want somebody who wants to come here from India and start a computer company? No, you can't do that. Go back to some other country and run a computer company then. Then we can do, remember what um, Hal Dobb, not Hal Dobb, Lou Dobb used to do. From Monday until Wednesday, he'd complain um, that uh, foreigners were that, that foreigners were coming here um, to work for him in his to work, stables. Yeah, in his <laughs> stables. Um, but a horse farm in New Jersey had illegal immigrants working for them. But he would say we ought to not let these people in the country, and then he'd complain that we were outsourcing work to these people that had talent and jobs and opportunities outside the country. The first of the week was don't let them in. The second of the week was how come all these jobs are now, these companies are now starting overseas, and on Saturday he'd re rest. But... Um, <laughs> This, look, the United States has a secret weapon in immigration that no other country can take advantage of. If we get mad, somebody would go to the Greeks, instead of shelling their ports, we say, we'll take 50 plumbers today, and tomorrow, and the next day, and how about heart surgeons? And you can just take lots of the people out of the country. You know, Iraq can't do that back to us. We're mad at you. Everybody can come live in Iraq. You know, that's not working. Um, ditto <laughs> Russia. We, we have this attraction for people who want to be Americans. I've never... <laughs> let, me, let me get you all to wrap up quickly on the following point, and then we'll end the discussion. Um, and I, I invite any of you to have this conversation offline with any of us as we leave. We are respectful to our hosts here at Cato. But um, let's just give you, frame the question this way. If you have to pick one of the preferred solutions we've heard out there, people often talk about border security, a guest worker program, fixing the legal immigration system, and, and or obviously dealing with the 11 million in some way. You get to pick one. You can only do one. If you get to pick one, which is you think, what do you think is most important? Is it border security? Is it ensuring, ensuring a workforce, uh, doing something about the 11 million? What moves the ball furthest down the field? Well, uh, creating a wall, um, it would clearly uh, not be the solution. Um, but border security is uh, an issue. Um, I think that the only way that you're really going to be able to control undocumented flow of, of individuals into the United States is if you create a system that works. I mean, if you, if you don't, if there isn't a legal mechanism for people to come to this country the right way, they're going to find a way to do it the wrong way. And, and then after that, after that system is in place, you're going to be able to deal with the 11 million or 12 million undo, uh, estimated undocumented people that are living here. But uh, you've got to create a system that makes people want to get in a line because the system right now, there's no line for them to get into. Okay, very good. Gabby? So if you want the economy to grow, um, if you want to bring people out of the shadows um, and not have second-class citizenship, then 
you'll bring the 11 million forward. You, you would know who they are. Um, you know, this whole issue of security, right? You don't know where they're at. Nobody knows, right? So if you really care about security of the country, you would bring everybody forward um, and give them a chance to go through a process to get their papers. Okay. And Grover, what one reform do you think would drive the ball furthest downfield? Take the corporate income tax rate to 15% and get rid of the <laughs> gains. And I say that because that would create the jobs and opportunities that would give us a breathing space to have a conversation about immigration where people weren't thinking that every person who came across the border was stealing my job because we'd be creating the opportunity when we're growing and things are going well, these pressures and some of the nastiness and, and unkind comments uh, that, that some people have been making for 200 years about the last guy in um, becomes less of a problem. So strong economic growth to, to start with makes everything else possible. Let me end with this, just a couple minutes if I could, very quickly. My wife uh, tells me and teases me that I have no friends. I think one of the reasons I have no friends is because I challenge my friends a lot. You know, if you read my columns, in this city you have the blues and the reds fighting it out, but nobody fights among themselves. And I fight in my own camp all the time. And listening to all of you, it seems like whether you're talking about conservatives who are split between nativists and business interests, or dreamers, some of whom feel entitled and some feel grateful to the country, or immigration attorneys, some who are actually immigration attorneys and others who are Democrats first, you each have in your own constituencies here a lot of room to fight within the family. And I think those fights are really critical because unless you clean your respective houses, uh, you're only contributing to this fog that doesn't get us anywhere. So there needs to be, everybody loves to shoot at the other guy who opposes you, but until Democrats start fighting Democrats and Republicans start fighting Republicans and liberals and conservatives have it out within their various constituencies, I don't think we're going to move the ball forward any. So I appreciate all of you and your discussion and thank you all for your attention. Thank, and thank you. you to the Cato Institute for putting this on.